yo, yo, yo. How y'all doing today? Have you ever thought about microwave success? What that might mean? Nowadays, we're so consumed with getting what we want right now. No delay, undelay. It's as if nobody knows how to cook anymore. <laughs> microwave success. You know, a microwave, what it does is shoots microwaves into your food, causing it to vibrate faster. And that's what heats it up. You know, you get what you give, though. The faster you heat up, the faster you cool down. In terms of success, this means the quicker you rise, the faster you fall. In comparison to a home-cooked meal, it might have taken hours to prepare, cutting up your veggies, getting just the right amount of seasonings, getting a spoonful, tasting it, like, I need a little bit more of this. That doing that over and over and over again, nowadays seems like a bother for the most part, but the end result is something to be appreciated, savored, reveled in. And that's the type of thing that's not going to go away too fast. You know, you're going to have leftovers for a while. <laughs> you're going to be eating off of this for a while. So which one would you rather? The success that comes from slaving over the stove, manifesting a beautiful meal that will last you for a long while? Or would you rather quick, fast, and in a hurry microwave success? taste all right but you'll always want more what do you think is better for you this is bryant the uproar radio host and you are listening to episode two on social media and instant gratification stay tuned How are you doing today, beautiful people? Today in the studio, we have the immaculate, the magnificent, and least likely to be on Twitter, Dr. Stephanie De Silva. Give her a round of applause. Round of Hello, applause. thank you for having me. I appreciate it. How are you doing today, Doctor? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day. This is my first time in your studio, so I'm All excited right. to be here. We really appreciate you for being here, and. Your focus in the academic room is psychology, specifically the psychology of learning and the psychology of eating. Yes, that's correct. So I, um, my original training is actually in the psychology of learning. So in terms of areas of expertise, I would say that is my main one. As an undergraduate, I had several faculty mentors who studied that area. And what that means is I study how all sorts of organisms from fish all the way to humans develop behavior habits and how those habits change over time as a result of experience. And so I study all sorts of organisms and do experimental tests on ways that they learn 
how to do new things. Mm. And so that's my original training, and it's still very much a part of who I am professionally. But in the last five to 10 years, I actually developed a side expertise based on just an area of interest that I had in my personal life related to health and wellness, and that is how we choose what to eat and when to eat and consume um, eating and drinking. And so I started offering a class here as a summer course at CSU called The Psychology of Eating about 10 years ago. And there was only one textbook out there available. It's not a traditional textbook. It's actually more of like a popular press book. And that area of psychology is not really an officially developed, really well-organized area. It really needs to be more developed, if you will, and have an umbrella organization. It's interesting, in undergraduate programs, we offer all sorts of courses in drug abuse and um, film consumption and things like that, but we have very few courses on eating and drinking, which is just kind of phenomenal if you think about it, because everyone eats and drinks every day, and it has a huge psychological impact. So I felt compelled to really push that area of interest forward and make an impact in this niche area. So I do have a book coming out. It's actually coming out this fall, but its publication date is January 2022, and it's called A Guide to the Psychology of Eating, and I co-authored it with another professional named Leanne Chaffee at the University of Washington, Tacoma, and we've been working for about three years to put together a real well-encompassed textbook in the psychology of eating. So that was sort of a real pivot or departure from what my traditional training was. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is very interesting. And your focus actually leans into the topic of the episode today. I'm very excited because, as you said, that area is honestly very much the unknown and not very paid attention to. And it is important, as you said, your gut has major influence on who you are and what you are to become in this world. And honestly, this unprecedented research that you have to offer will definitely manifest some amazing results. So I have a question for you, Dr. De Silva. This is more so pertaining to your prowess in learning, the psychology of learning. You know, social media today is really heavy on the instant gratification. Nowadays, people are so consumed with getting what they want now and right now. Nothing must be in the way. We are really aggressive with the way that we consume media and consume technology. It's as if we don't, we, we, it's as if we, we can't get enough. We're insatiable. Yes. I, so my question is, how do you think that this behavior, the advent of social media and instant gratification, how do you think that they have altered the psychological makeup of human beings? Yeah, that's a great question. We start to wonder how we're changing our psyche and our human experience as a result of these kinds of inventions and these daily interactions we have. And when we talk about psychological makeup, it really implies something biological or physiological that we are composed of. And and in psychology, we talk about two types of alteration, as you talk about, that can happen. And one of those is what we call phylogenetic adaptation, and that's adaptation that occurs across generations. It's at the genetic level. So in that regard, social media is such a new phenomenon, it's such a new invention, that we're pretty sure, and there's no evidence, that humans are any different genetically speaking, right? 
So then we turn our attention to a different type of adaptation, and that's what we call ontogenetic adaptation. And that's the kind of adaptation we see in the brain, in our physiological makeup, that happens within the lifespan. And this can be actually quite counterintuitive for a lot of people to understand because we typically think of our physical structures in our body as somewhat permanent and set before we have certain behaviors and actions or experiences and that those physiological makeups drive those behaviors and actions. But it's actually a two-way street. We've known for decades now that whenever we have a particular experience, whenever we engage in a behavior, we actually in turn change our physiological makeup. So our brain is constantly being rewired and changing physically as a result of what we choose to do with our day. Um, so some examples are we can grow altogether new neurons, we can develop new connections between neurons, and one of the most important changes that we see happen is something called pruning, which is when neuronal connections are severed. Actually, they, they break apart, which makes a lot of our pathways more efficient. In particular, when it comes to social media, what that means is we can create a vicious cycle. Because once we start consuming social media, and I like your word consuming because that's how researchers talk about it too. They're talking about consuming these, these um, social networking sites just as you would other products. Um, when we start consuming social media, we may be somewhat sensitive to that instant gratification. But as we consume it more and more, our brain becomes wired to seek it like you're saying, in more, more of an addictive way. And in particular, one area of the brain that seems to be a key culprit is called the insular cortex, or what we call the insula. As we talk about addiction to these things, researchers actually refer to social networking site addiction. So it's called SNS addiction. It's not referred to most of the time as social media. But with SNS addiction, this is this is a definition that I'll give you. It's a state of maladaptive dependency on social networking sites that manifests in compulsively seeking and engaging in social networking site use to such an extent that typical behavioral addiction symptoms emerge. So while there's still ongoing debate about the definition and whether it's a formal disorder, we know that these dependencies adversely affect various facets of people's lives, including social functioning, well-being, academic and professional performance, as well as mental health. So this is all part of this SNS addiction that we talk about. And there's evidence that high prevalence of use and this sort of addiction at a maladaptive level does change the structure of this insular cortex, which is this area of the brain. So the more that people use these, the more that we're rewiring our brain to become dependent on that instant gratification that you speak of. Yeah. And I'll give you just some stats here. Almost 5% of adolescents and over 15% of young adults, which would be our college population, present symptoms that are indicative of SNS mm. addiction. Now, the reason why the insula is important here, I, I think, are two reasons. One is the insula is involved in decision-making. So this part of the brain is really important for us being able to be aware of and be sensitive to long-term consequences. So think about this for a minute. I'm, I'm a student. I know I have a paper due in a class. That's the long-term consequence that really is important. But if I've rewired my insula right through heavy social media use and I've become really sort of dependent on this instant gratification, I'm now making a maladaptive decision to spend two hours on Pinterest instead of working on my paper. And that in the end makes me less likely to finish college, right? And perform well and achieve long-term goals. 
So one reason the insulin is important is because of that insensitivity to those long-term consequences. The second reason it's important is because the insulin actually communicates also with our reward system in the brain, which is really rich in dopamine. It gives us that same high we feel if we do cocaine or another amphetamine. So because it's linked to the reward pathways, what that means is the more that we use those social media or SNS, social networking sites, the more we use them, the more we're clicking into that reward system, right? And so that explains why that instant, that next picture that we see or that next funny meme or seeing what someone else is doing is constantly plugging into that reward system. And one thing to keep in mind about rewards, and this becomes somewhat of a chicken and egg problem, is we're sensitive to rewards in a very relative way. So, Brian, if you have a very rich family social life outside of social networking, you see people on a daily basis, you have meaningful connections, you're actually less likely to be so sensitive to the rewards that are offered by SNS use, right? right? Because those are actually more meaningful and deeper. But people who don't have those rich connections, maybe you've just moved to a new city or maybe you're in college for the first time and you don't know anyone in your building, you may develop a dependence on that SNS because it's your only access to feeding that reward system, right? And that becomes a really bad cycle because I'm lonely, so I go to SNS, but the more I'm on SNS, the more I have superficial connections and not real ones and the more I feed into my loneliness and depression. And those are the two main reasons why that's an important part of the brain. Have you ever heard of the concept of microwave success? No. Well, a lot of what you said coincides with the idea, especially how you said that insulin affects the the way that we perceive the long-term effects of our behavior as far as social media and instant gratification goes. So microwave success is basically like with the advent of the microwave, we began to realize that we could get what we wanted Mm -hmm. And get our food really quickly. You know, we didn't have to put it in the oven. We didn't have to cook it. You know, we could just go on ahead and have it right right here and ready for us. This is similar to the way that we interact with social media um, for instant gratification and neglect the long-term benefits of any behavior that might be more beneficial. You know, instead, we'll go for that quick fix, that quick hot meal, you know, that is easy for us. And instead of putting in the time and energy to manifest a home-cooked meal, we, we're leaning heavily on the fast food or the microwave things. How, how do you feel about that concept? Do you think that it's the, the best way for us to go, honestly? So this is where, that's a great point, and it's totally valid, and all the research supports exactly what you're saying. If people had a choice, especially if they're highly deprived of food at that point or really hungry, they're going to go for the immediate rich energy-dense food that can be microwaved. So, I mean, I think that's a great example. So what this gets back to is what I was talking about at the very beginning about phylogenetic adaptation. And what that means is we are wired, think about this, you know, our genes from an evolutionary standpoint have been around for many, many generations, thousands and thousands of years, back to the point at which we should be wired genetically so that we take the most energy-dense food that we can at that point and consume as much of it as we can, right? Or social affiliation or whatever other reward we're talking about. So what's happened is our environments have changed so rapidly, our cultural development has developed so rapidly that now we're in a lot of traps, so to speak. We call them behavior traps. And the reason they're traps is for exactly what you're saying. 
we're wired to take that immediate gratification, that immediate reward, consume as much as possible for survival's sake. Because thousands of years ago, if you found a food cache, you should take it and eat as much as possible because you have no idea when the next food cache is going to come right, along. Right. But now we have an abundance of food everywhere. So we're constantly in this behavior trap where we're making a decision for our trying to for our long-term benefits, but our environments are setting us up for failure because we have so many foods available. Like you said, I can microwave the burrito or I can cook something. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. So I think our evolution, we haven't evolved to, to a sense to make those decisions. But I don't mean to sound so pessimistic, Bryant, because we, we do have a lot of strategies based on psychological research for how to better arrange our environments and work on our self-control and try to fight against those urges to microwave. True. I see it as being more realistic. You know, optimism is great, but you overvalue being positive all the time, then you'll blind yourself to the other side of the spectrum, which could aid you in some way, shape, or form. If you're not uncomfortable, if you don't embrace the uncomfortable, then you can't grow. You can't learn. Absolutely. So just like addiction cycles, is there an increase in the need to use SNS to meet that same good feeling? Yes. So that's something that researchers have shown time and time again. And I was going to mention that not just with SNS use, but I'll be a little more broad here, cell phone use in general, personal electronic devices. So there is a lot of evidence that when someone has their iPhone, for example, this was one pretty famous study, and it's present while they're trying to do a word jumble task, the iPhone notification goes off. We see an immediate rise in blood pressure and immediate rise in heart rate because people experience anxiety and report unpleasantness psychologically when they can't check their phone. So we do see clear physiological signs of a withdrawal effect, right? Like, I need it. It's been a while since I've checked it. And I've noticed it in my students when they're in my classes, right? It's all very difficult to go through a 50-minute period without checking my phone because I may be missing out on something. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So what are some other noticeable changes that you believe are the result of the quote-unquote social media takeover? The first couple, which are, are kind of obvious, I would say, are image consciousness. I think we're used to using filters. There's fake imagery. I think there's a focus on how things look and are portrayed rather than genuine insight and true disclosure of ourselves, meaningful connections. And there's a lot of evidence to support that, too, that the connections are great through social media, but they're often not as deep and as meaningful as in real life connections, IRL connections, right? I mean, in a sense, we now have the ability to curate a fake story. We can create our storyboards now. So that's that's a very different approach to life than we had before social networking sites. A second one, which is sort of leaning back into my Psych of Eating book, and then I'll go more broad again, which is body image standards. And I think there's positive and negative here. I think there's still somewhat of a thin ideal that's typical of industrialized Western nations. But I actually think, to a large extent, social networking sites have done a service in terms of body image because I see a huge rise in appreciation for bodies of all shapes and sizes. And I think the reason that is, and I can come back to this idea too, there's almost like an egalitarian feel to social networking sites, like it's accessible by anyone. And so now we're not at the mercy of 
designers and magazines to tell us what's pretty, right? Like we can, we just have each other and we can support each other and what serves as a good body image out there in social networking. So I think that's a great result in a lot of ways. A few other effects that aren't so great psychologically, there's a focus on capturing and sharing information rather than truly experiencing as it's happening. There's an area of research about consumption of experiences. And when an experience is moderately enjoyable, let's say like you and I are just out to lunch, Brian, and we decide to take a picture of it and post it on Instagram, Mm. that's not going to have a huge impact on how much I enjoyed it. But let's say you and I just climb to the top of Mount Everest. It's like a peak experience. So we're talking about really enjoyable things on a scale of like eight or nine out of 10. Mm. When I start to take photos of it, and especially they show, if I feel a pressure to share it or Mm. post it to social media, now I've actually detracted from my enjoyment of it. Now I've actually taken in less about the experience and I've refocused on something else, which is capturing it. And that's sad in a sense, because if I ever climbed Mount Everest, of course I would want to post it. But at the same time, I surely want to experience that as fully as possible. Some of that is because we're focusing on the photo and the social media. Some of it's because I've now changed my perspective. Now I'm not in first person. Now I'm in third person, right? Mm -hmm. And then the last thing is from memory research and cognition is when I document something, like kind of like when you're taking notes in class, you're actually less likely to exert effort towards encoding it and really remembering it in the moment because you have a documentation of it. So like, I'll look at it later kind of phenomenon. That's something that we see a lot with taking pictures. The fourth one I'll mention is FOMO. Have you heard of FOMO? No. Bryant? Okay. So show is saying yes. So FOMO stands for fear of missing out. And this is probably the most well-researched psychological effect of social networking sites, fear of missing out because it has really negative effects on people's experiences. So the fear of missing out refers to the pervasive apprehension that others might be having rewarding experiences from which one is absent. So FOMO is characterized by the desire to stay continually connected with what others are doing. So it's the kind of thing, Bryant, that I'm so glad Social networking didn't exist when I was in high school because if I was home alone with my parents all weekend, I had no idea what everybody else was doing. But now kids today, if they're home alone, they know what they're missing out on, right? Mm -hmm. And psychologists have studied this and found just such interesting examples. So couples will go on an amazing honeymoon vacation to Hawaii, like a trip of a lifetime. They'll actually have less than enjoyable experiences because they're on social media seeing that they're missing the Georgia game back home or a neighborhood party, like a run-of-the-mill event, but all their friends are there, and suddenly they can't enjoy their honeymoon because of FOMO. Hmm. And otherwise, they never would have had that experience if they weren't checking a social networking site. So that one's a big one. It's also considered a factor, by the way, in declining birth rates around the world. So a lot of countries have currently declining birth rates. Well, young adults are more and more using social networking, and they're seeing what life could look like without kids. So before, we never had access to all that. If I'm home alone with a two-year-old all weekend, I don't realize what all I'm missing out on. But now it's becoming more apparent. And so people are choosing more and more not to have children because they want to do all these amazing things. How does the possession of all of this heavy knowledge make you feel? (laughs) Well, as a psychologist and a mom, it does actually make me a little a little sad 
It worries me in the sense that folks, especially young people, are increasingly attached to social networking sites and personal electronic devices. I think the time spent on these sites can be displacing other life activities. You and I mentioned that a little bit before the interview. And a lot of the activities that they could be doing are much healthier ones. So, like, it's not uncommon for my students to mention that they spend several hours a day on SNS, a couple of hours on Pinterest, a couple of hours on TikTok, and imagine what could be accomplished with that time, right, right? right? So not only could they be getting more movement or better food preparation, they could be reading and writing, they could be doing different hobbies like gardening or woodworking, volunteer hours. Imagine if everybody devoted that to their communities. Mm. But for me, two big ones that I see that students sacrifice a lot are sleep, which is huge, Talk about psychological and mental impacts um, and costly uh, health-wise at the individual level and societal level, but also real connections. So multiple studies have shown that the presence of cell phones during common wait times, like if we're waiting in line at the tax office or doctor's office, you immediately have fewer connections and lesser connections with those around you because we're always carrying our cell phones these days. What that means is we have less empathy for others and we have less trust in others. And trust is a huge factor in societies in terms of giving, in terms of getting along with others, in terms of being kind to others. So the superficial connection that's created and imagined through SNS use is getting in the way of real human connection. Mm. And that was the last thing I was going to mention with the quote-unquote social media takeover is I was going to mention cell phone use more broadly, which came up in that as well. So we know that it's not just social media use, but cell phone use in general that can create some of these effects. So you talk about trust being important and kind of suffering from SNS use and cell phone usage. Is this something that can affect generationally? Do you mean if I see my caretakers and they don't trust others and they have these superficial connections, then absolutely, because that models for me, that provides a template for me for how to get along with others, right? Mm. So if I'm riding in the car with my caretaker and someone um, takes a parking lot spot, let's say if I'm at Publix and someone takes my spot, and I immediately go into a mode where I start to verbalize, oh, they didn't even care, selfish prick, blah, 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 you know, and I say that, then I'm immediately modeling a mistrust instead of saying something like, oh, perhaps that person has a handicap and they really needed a close spot, or perhaps that person's in a hurry because they have a loved one in the hospital and they need to run in and get flowers, right? Right. Like, it's a totally different mindset. And so if I set up the situation so that I'm construing everything as like someone getting something past me or trying to take advantage of me, that's that mistrust manifested. And so, yes, I can teach that, and it can be transgenerational. It also affects how I act, because if I think everyone's out to get what's best for them, then I, in turn, behave the same. Exactly, and I actually, in one of the later episodes this season, I will be discussing this a little bit further through the lens of sociology and capitalism specifically. Yes. Um, Capitalism breeds that dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest behavior amongst us, and This is something that many sociologists have worried about through time, and it has caused a decline of that fellow feeling, you know, that feeling of unity that many of the indigenous tribes and older generations had. They had that sense of unity, family, camaraderie that we lack today, and not only 
is capitalism um, a contributing factor? But exactly what you're saying right now, the usage of SNS and social media and cell phones, it's it's really causing a major decline in our social interactions and genuine social interactions at that. Exactly. It's as if we, um, we're losing, losing connection with one another more and more. And I'll just follow up on that and say, especially in the United States, so when you look into that, into capitalism, if you draw comparisons between the United States and Australia, you'll see drastic differences. So in Australia, they have high trust among their population for whatever reason. And in the United States, we don't. And I think you can see it really recently in the whole vaccination argument, yeah. right? So there's a mistrust of there's something in the vaccine. I can't trust the CDC or I can't trust my fellow person to get the vaccine so that we have herd immunity. Like if you trusted your neighbor and you were empathetic towards your neighbor, then that would be your leaning, right? But if there's a mistrust and I don't have your interest at heart, then that's where we see it. It can, it can really affect public health right, and public right. programming. So on July 15, 2017, <laughs> you tweeted a TED Talk by Adam Alter in which he discussed why our screens make us less happy. You touched on this a bit. He referenced technology today to a drug. That's something you mentioned. We're being robbed of signals that let us know that it's time to move on. Instead, it's a constant refresh, a constant, I need more. What's next? What's next? What's next? It's never enough. And it really exploits our insatiable nature and desire to expand. It is made to be addictive and self-consuming. Yes. With this in mind, what is instant gratification teaching us? What are we learning from it? Yeah, that's a great point about you saying it's designed, and it certainly is designed that way. I mean, it's kind of like when casinos were first created, they reached out to psychologists. One in particular was B.F. Skinner, and they asked, how can we get people to stay at the slot machine? Yeah. <laughs> and we used what we know about rewards and reinforcers to keep people at slot machines. And the same thing is being done in social media. Scientists are heavily involved in designing these systems so that you get hooked. And I think anytime we have a repeated experience with scenarios that provide instant gratification, and that could be immediate feedback, it could be instantaneous answers, short-term pleasures, we become more accustomed to that. And right. it gets back to that rewiring of the brain and behavior like we talked about earlier. And what that does is it makes us grow to expect that instant experience. And so this makes us even more sensitive over time that cycle, to situations where instant gratification is experienced, and it makes us more irritable and impatient in situations where our outcomes are delayed. In other words, when things aren't instant, we don't know why. We can't tolerate it very well. So many of our, my colleagues and I have actually talked in the last few years. We've noticed that students have become a little more impatient with email responses, to the point where I'll get several prompts or emails even within a few hour period if I haven't answered yet. You know, we can even see it in our daily work. So I now have a statement in my syllabus that asks students to give me 24 hours to respond. <laughs> because, you know, if you're so used to getting, and even now when you go to websites for like internet service or anything, I feel like even shopping online, we have that immediate chat that pops up yes. everywhere. So I think we may, we may come to that in higher ed. I may need to be a chat box at some point. So can you see us overcoming this, or is this going to cripple us to a point of no return? That's a great point. I mean, I think social networking sites or social media are a technology like any other, 
right? So technology can be used for good or bad. It can improve or deteriorate life. So I think Facebook and other SNS outlets have done a lot of good. I mean, just some examples, Facebook has connected family members across the globe to maintain connections between people who would otherwise never communicate. Like I love seeing people from my high school that I never would have been in touch with. It also creates more egalitarianism. I mentioned that earlier across cultures and class. I mean, I'm able to follow Jennifer Garner and Kevin Hart. Like, that's amazing that I can see what he's doing with his family and what she's doing in her kitchen. And it creates the sense that, like, we're all kind of the same. This morning, I saw an Alec Baldwin post on my Instagram, and it was his son's birthday. And I could see that he had toys strewn about his den, and there was something hanging over the stairwell. And I was like, oh, his house is a mess just like mine. Like, there's definitely this sense of, like, we're all the same or similar in some way. And that's all great. It can also help us identify, like, safely where people are in in natural disasters, Mm -hmm. right? It can get people to register to vote more easily. We had huge voter turnout because of all the the push. So there's a lot of great things to it. And actually, researchers have shown that staying in touch with others, staying aware of, like, events in your community and community engagement, that all is a real positive outcome of social networking. So I think what we need to do is focus on those and try to get people to stick with moderation. So the downside is, as we've talked about, it contributes to political divide. People are more opinionated. People are um, now encouraged to consume information in clickbait form rather than actual contextualized information, right? I can't even tolerate a 12-minute, 60-minute story anymore, right? Like a news story anymore. It has to be this quick meme that makes a point. And then, of course, it creates the time-consuming addictions that we've been discussing. And along those lines, suicide attempts are way up. So in the last 10 years, especially among teens, and social media is the main culprit, the main factor. And I think that gets back to the fear of missing out. So I think what we need to do to end on a more positive note with this question is to say, look, we know it has good purpose. It's not going to go anywhere. And we need to be better about educating people and managing people's use of it, like we would any technology. For sure. And also, as we know with any addiction, just like, you know, as long as we have alcohol and as long as we have gambling and as long as we have pornography and other things like that, none of those are all bad in a vacuum. It's just we need to learn how to better consume them in a healthy way. True, true. It's never the tool that is either good or bad. It's the way that you use it. Yes. It seems we should be able to rewire our brains to have a healthy relationship with technology. We definitely have that capability, the same way that we can wire our brains to have an unhealthy relationship with it. So what do you think we can do to have a healthy relationship? with technology? Well, I think we're seeing some of the first full generation of people who grew up with social media, right? Mm. So I think the key is from an early age, teaching children how to exercise self-control and remove themselves from their devices accordingly. I shouldn't be prying the iPad from my child's hands. I should say, look, reasonably, you've been on there an hour and a half. What else are you missing? So explicit training, like This is what you're missing as a result of spending four hours on your device. You haven't been outside. You haven't gotten any sunshine. (laughs) You know, all these things. And they may not care at that moment. But it means something. But over time, the message gets through, right? And the more that we practice it, just like we practice with healthy eating, same thing. You know, it's ironic. Steve Jobs, when he was still alive, rest in peace, (laughs) he limited the 
interaction that his children had with technology, the technology he created because yeah. he knew, he knew what effects obviously that it could have. And I agree with you. This is something that we should really focus on if we seek to improve not only as individuals, but as a society. I'm really excited that health is something that's being pushed to the forefront, not only just physical health, but mental health, you know, spiritual well-being, all of these things. There's been a really big push and I'm eager to see where it goes. So I just wanted to touch on something before we ended. Mm -hmm. Is there a correlation between the increased ADHD diagnosis and manifestations and social media and digital technology, the increase in those things? Is there a correlation between the two? Well, I'll follow up on what you said about Steve Jobs, and then I'll answer your question. I have heard on several podcasts that people in Silicon Valley across the board do not allow their children mm -hmm. to use media. <laughs> so I feel like that's like a common theme that I've heard time and time again, which is very interesting that the people who are creating these things don't let their own family members consume them. Should be a red flag. <laughs> yes. But back to your question. So... Of the articles I've consulted on the topic, you're right that ADHD prevalence has increased. It's appeared to have gone up from about 6% prevalence in the population to about 10% up into uh, about 2018. Mm -hmm. But no one mentions social media as a culprit. Part of that is because children under 10 usually show symptoms of ADHD, and they're not really heavy users of SNS yet, Right. Further, the United States actually has much higher prevalence rates of ADHD compared to the rest of the globe, even though there's SNS prevalence around the world. Right. So we, we don't think it's social media in particular, but I will jump ahead and say increased use of electronic devices can create impulsive actions that are symptomatic of ADHD. So for the most part, they think ADHD is genetic. So these are sort of a lifelong tendency. It's somewhat permanent. But if I give people devices, especially if it leads to blue light exposure, sleep deprivation, fast-paced programming, like SpongeBob, I don't know if you remember, got a really bad rap about 10 years ago because there was a study that showed that cartoons with fast-paced changes in scenery or backgrounds produce short-term impulsive behavior, lack of executive function in children four to six years old. But Tom and Jerry did the same thing. So it wasn't just SpongeBob. But I know a lot of people who won't show their kids SpongeBob as a result of that study. But anyway, so there are short-term changes in our impulsive action. But we don't get those long-term, lifelong changes as a result of social media exposure. So those of you who have kids or if you have a nephew or niece, you may notice that they act impulsively, especially when it comes to emotion regulation, when they're either playing a game on their iPad or using their iPad or when you try to take it away because we're in that short-term frame where mm. we're like, they're just in it and their executive functioning is limited at that point. But the other reasons that people point to for ADHD increases in diagnosis are just more awareness and diagnosis of it, especially with the Affordable Care Act. That has really improved people's access to diagnosis and care for ADHD. Also, they're more keen on recognizing inattention now instead of just the hyperactive part. Yeah. So of the population, we, we have seen a bigger jump in girls being diagnosed compared to boys. It's really easy to see hyperactive behavior, right? So since the 1980s, boys have been way over, like more diagnosed with ADHD, but now we're seeing it, the numbers even out as we notice more of the spacey 
child sitting in the classroom who may not have bothered the teacher before in the same way that like a hyperactive child would have. And then I'll say one other thing that people point to for the increase in ADHD prevalence is actually better neonatal care. So in years past, when a mother may have used tobacco or alcohol or or just had exposure, a fetus had exposure to toxins in the environment that would have created debilitating effects. Now we have better medical care. That child's more likely to survive and thrive in a lot of ways, but may show symptoms like ADHD. So there may actually be an increase in its existence for that reason. So we don't think there's a connection between social media and ADHD, but definitely that search for instant feedback and gratification and definitely for impulsive action, I would agree with you. Okay, okay. Is there anything else that I didn't touch on, that you didn't touch on, that you would like to discuss that we didn't get a chance to? Maybe one more thing. I would just say if CSU students are listening to this, to think about the things that we talked about with maybe how to moderate your time and use, and not just of social networking sites, but also of cell phones in general. Like put away the cell phone where you can't even see it. Maybe it's not even in the same room, which researchers have shown makes a huge impact. It's not even in the same room. I can think better. I can study better. I can test better. I can have a conversation better with people. Um, So I would leave the listeners with that message to maybe think about just putting the cell phone away. Well, Dr. DeSilva, I really appreciate you for being here. You've taught me so much in this small span of time. And can you let us know about your book again? I'm very interested. <laughs> when can students expect to be tested on the material? <laughs> That's funny. So I will be using the book for the first time next summer when I offer my psychology of eating class. It's offered every summer at Columbus State University. It's an online class. And pre-orders are available now through Amazon and Bloomsbury. And the book should be starting to get mailed out in November, December of this year. That's great. That is great. I just thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was actually a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Much love and much thanks to Dr. DeSilva for being present on the show this week. Please, please, please join us next week for more Contemplation. Uproar Radio is produced with the cooperation of the student staff of WCUG Cougar Radio and the CSU Department of Communication. Thank you to Department Chair Dr. Dana Gibson and WCUG Faculty Advisor Dr. Bruce Sketz for their help in airing the show. Show Irukawa, shout out to my man, produced and edited this episode. Operations Director of WCUG Cougar Radio is Sho Irukawa. Our Programming Manager is Lewis Myers. And Marketing Manager is Logan Swain. You can listen to our show and more online by searching on call letters WCUG. I'm Bryant, and you've been listening to Uproar Radio. Thank you. Take care. Love. Love.